Hello, and welcome to Dissecting Philosophy with Dr. MacDonald. In this episode, we'll be continuing on reading through Hannah Arendt's The Origins of Totalitarianism, making our way through the section, The So-Called Totalitarian State. So, what we'll be doing as we like to do as well, is have a nice brief recap of what we went over in the last episode, and then going into have a look at state organizations. First then we'll have a brief going over of how state organizations normally work, and then having a look at the Nazis first, and then the Soviet second for exactly how did their state organizations work. And dealing with the Nazis, what we'll be looking at for them is the creation of offices, a lack of a center of power, and problems in following orders. And following a comparable theme for Russia as well, the creation of offices again, and really a look at their three main organizations and how things really worked overall. And so there's going to be really a nice comparison that we can make at the end and the conclusion between Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia for their state organizations and and looking at those comparable points and overlapping points between the two. So let's get stuck into our recap then of the last episode. So in the last episode then I dealt with the two ideas and that is the notion that the revolutionary aspect was going to fizzle out and then the other idea that we had to look at was how the regimes fought against normalization, which another way of putting it is how the movements continually worked against the threat of information coming from the outside. And so this whole aspect on the one hand then of the idea of a revolutionary aspects and violent aspects fizzling out was because of the sort of international outlook and international community of not really wanting to go into another war. Having just come out of World War One, they didn't want to start World War Two, And so we had a look at Hitler and the Munich Agreement, which was in 1938, when they mistakenly thought that Germany would cease taking over territory after annexing the Sudan land of Czechoslovakia. And equally with Stalin and the Yalta Agreement of 1945, they mistakenly thought that Stalin would keep his promise of allowing the political freedom of Poland. Interestingly enough, both moments there involving Poland in two different ways, with Germany not that long after the Munich Agreement, then invading Poland, which started World War II, and then, not long after the Yalta Agreement, Stalin goes to take over Poland as well. Here we have the two given examples of starting World War II and then the start of the Cold War. And as Churchill then says about the whole line about the Iron Curtain. And so here we see from the last episode 
this whole aspect of continually taking over territory. And the caricature that we used, which is a very good one, although a little bit cliche now because it's been done so much, is the evil villain within comic books, TVs, and films, and so forth, all wanting world domination. And why does that work so well as a caricature for how the movements work is because of the whole total aspect of totalitarianism. They want world conquest, world domination. They're not solely happy with just taking over the territory of their own countries. And so then goes into the whole line of, well, they're not going to stop just with having annexed the Suedan land in relation to Germany, or having the appearance of trying to accept the political freedom of Poland when, and actually, you're preparing to invade it for Stalin. And then, after this, we sort of looked at the interesting topic of the combination of law and ethics. And that goes into Hitler's line that the two should be inseparable from each other and we touched upon the fact that what exactly happens when you blend ethics with the law is that you have the law on the one hand that's meant to be something that's objective something that's unbiased because then it makes it fair to the person undergoing prosecution and therefore, you don't immediately just say that person is guilty because therefore the law should act in an objective way to therefore say whether that person is guilty or not. But suddenly you add ethics into it and having ethics based upon a specific model in which you could say that model could be a specific religious outlook, then that skews the law into being biased and therefore incredibly subjective. And what that then does is, of course, make the law discriminatory. And Hitler used this in order to further the Nazis' own ideology and outlook and discriminatory and racist views of the Jewish people. And the example that we went into to discuss was the Nuremberg Laws, which is in 1935, was passed to further their racist views of discrimination and racial selection. And then for Stalin, we had a look at the new constitution, which was passed in 1936, which promised a lot of great things, but actually didn't mean anything at all whatsoever as the Great Purge was carried out not long after it, which then nullified everything that had been promised. And in fact, the Constitution itself literally remained dead letters, as Arendt says, until well after Stalin's death. So that's two ways in which you see how the movements themselves had that blending of ethics and the law to try and manipulate and use their own ideological outlook to therefore usurp what was said. So therefore, everything that's passed 
is merely is always having that outlook of having a specific purpose behind it that fits in with their own ideology and agenda. So that covers our recap of the last episode. So next, let's get into discuss state organizations and how they typically work before we get into discuss the Nazis and Soviet Russia. So typically then, when we have a state organization, there exists only one of it in government. And for example, here in the UK, we have a foreign office and a home office and so forth. With, of course, the foreign office dealing with foreign affairs and the home office dealing with domestic affairs, such as welfare for everybody of the country and so forth. So the key thing about this as well is that these seek to further adhere to the laws and outlook that have been debated and passed upon in government. And that these offices and institutes are not biased towards any particular party, such as here in the UK, again, we have the Labour Party, Conservative Party, Green Party, Liberal Democrats, and so on. It's solely one that's based upon the interests of what's meant to be good for everybody in the country. So we have all these specific state organizations and how exactly do they work? Exactly as we just said, that it's all debated upon in the House of Commons here in the UK. There is a going back and forth upon laws and various different arguments put back and forth there eventually is a vote and a thing is either passed or amended and so on as you do within government and then the offices themselves will enact and put forth all these things that are passed and then all these offices themselves don't have a specific allegiance to any party whatsoever but will carry out ultimately what's been passed and what's been set in law and so forth that's been debated upon. So when we get into deal with Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia then, what marks out an immediate difference from how things typically work to how they changed how state organizations worked is that they created their own offices in departments of government and the difference is is that you have the party organizations and then you have the government organizations and offices and the government side of things begin to get sapped of their power and what ultimately happens with the party organizations is to then further the interests of the party itself rather than the government. And so just from that initial points, we can see what's going on is that with the creation of the party's own state organizations, it's all going to be biased and slanted towards a specific ideology so that's either going to be one based upon the Nazis 
we're for the Jewish world conspiracy or going to Soviet Russia, that ideology is going to be based upon communism. They take precedence over having that objective outlook. There is no objective outlook. Everything's biased and slanted towards the ideology. And so there's that immediate difference that we have between the two. Creation of offices that are biased towards an ideology, no longer objective, no longer neutral. So let's move now into looking at Nazi Germany and how things work there. So in the Nazi regime, government offices are kept functioning whilst there are new offices or institutions that are built that seek to further the interests of the party. And the example that Arendt gives us is that the Nazis left the personnel in foreign affairs office at Wilhelmstrasse nearly untouched. But the Nazis created their own foreign affairs office, the NSDAP Office of Foreign Affairs in 1933, led by Alfred Rosenberg. And this was to maintain contact with Eastern Europe and the Balkans. Then they set up another foreign affairs office in 1938 to compete with the one in Wilhelmstrasse, which was led by... Joachim von Ribbentrop, which is to handle foreign affairs in the West. And then another foreign affairs office was created, an SS office responsible for handling negotiations with all Germanic groups in Denmark, Norway, Belgium, and the Netherlands. But unfortunately, from a Google search, I was unable to find exactly what this SS office was called. But the main thing that we can take away from this is that we have on the government side of things just one foreign affairs office in Wilhelmstrasse. Then what do the Nazis do is create multiple foreign affairs offices all ones that are biased towards their own ideology and breaking everything up as well with one dealing with the Balkans in Eastern Europe, another one dealing with the foreign affairs in the West and then we have one dealing specifically for those countries surrounding Germany of, of Denmark, Norway, Belgium and the Netherlands in order to therefore have that focus upon those racially Germanic groups, going back into their whole ideology again of identifying people in other countries with Germanic blood, as they say. And the example that's popped up previously is the kidnapping of Polish children by the Nazis because they were sought to be Germanic as they fit into the whole idea of the Aryan race of a blonde-haired, blue eyes, for instance. And so we have that department for the SS specifically looking within those countries for those Aryan traits. So we have the situation in which there is the original government state organization, and then there are multiple 
organizations all created by the Nazis. And so, we then have a situation in which the Nazis didn't seek to incorporate the original state organizations. So, you end up into a situation in which there exists double sets of organizations, and the examples that were given by Iran is that there exists two National Socialist student organizations, two women's organizations, two for university professors, and so on. And you would think to yourself, okay, well, the Nazis have split things up with them creating specifically organizations that's biased towards them and their ideology, and you have the government ones on the other hand. Surely then that the Nazi side would be the ones who are arguably more powerful, because they're the ones that's leaning towards the Nazi ideology. And Arendt says, no, in fact, it's not guaranteed that these party organizations are always stronger than its counterpart of the state organizations. And not only that, it's completely unknown for what exactly organization would be higher and lower in the overall party hierarchy. And so, one thing that immediately comes into mind of having the specific Nazi organizations as being more powerful is just incorrect. We don't know exactly how things are going to unfold, and we don't know which organizations could potentially be more higher up in the hierarchy than the other one. And you would say to yourself, okay, within all this creation of offices and so forth, then surely there must be a center of power. And Hannah Arendt says, no, there's not a permanent center of power. What happens, in fact, is that the center of power continually moves as new organizations are created. And so, one example that we have is that after the Reichstag fire in February 1933, she says that the SA were the real authority, and the Nazi party only appeared to be an authority. And then the center of power then moved as the SS was the elite form of the SA, and then that continued on as the SS broke off from the SA completely, and then you could see that power shifted again through all the different forms and break-off movements and so forth, like the Death Head movement and so on. And really this tackles another idea that somehow the party itself would always take precedence over the elite formations. And really the idea there is to sort of shake our minds out of that idea completely. The parties are usurped by the elite formations because they are the elite formations. And therefore we have all the emphasis upon power itself and the immense level of authority that's given to them over the party members and the regular party members. Let's say, for instance, that the SA would be given so much more power and authority than a normal party member would be, for instance. Next, we can get into the whole sort of mindset then 
of while we have all these multiple sets of organizations and surely then it would be easy enough to understand what you're going to be ordered to do because you're going to have been ordered by such and such organization and you carry out those orders and it's done. At least that's how things would work in a normal sense. But here we don't have a normal sense of how things work at all because you're living simultaneously with all these different organizations. We have the civil services, we have the party, we have the elite formations such as the SA and SS. And because of all those multiple offices, there's a confusion in knowing whose orders you should be obeying at a given time. Because you can be given such and such information from, let's say, the party as well as the SS. Which one would you take precedence over as the ordinary person? And the situation for the SA and SS is not really much better in executing the orders. And this is because the orders they received were intentionally vague. And so normally for whenever you receive instructions, let's say at work, please go do this. It's nice and clear. It gives you a statement that you immediately understand and therefore you go carry it out. Can you please go take out the rubbish for me? Ah, okay. I guess I'll go do that. At least it'll give me five minutes where I can just go and relax. Is mostly what you think to yourself. But here with the SA and SS, they're actually given vague orders. And the whole process of it is that they're trained to recognize hints rather than what's actually stated. And I thought of a fun example. It's my own example that I've just thought up in which we can get more into what the mindset of the orders would be like. And my example here is a fun one in to say, the pink hippo dances elegantly in a tutu. Okay, so we have that really fun example that I've just had there of the pink hippo dancing in a tutu. And it's that whole point. It's extremely vague. What the heck is going on? We have this really bizarre image and hippos don't dance in tutus, what's going on? And that's the point of while the SA and SS are trained specifically to get past this to say, hmm, okay, maybe tutu means this and hippo is specifically referring to this. And therefore, aha, I have understood exactly what it wants me to do I'm going to carry out and execute those orders. And we've already started to peel away at how the Nazi state organizations have worked. And we have, on the one hand, the government organizations, and then we have multiple Nazi organizations, like we've just had for the Foreign Office. So let's use another example then to get more into this onion-like structure that the Nazis state organizations work. And I thought really the whole idea of an onion really works well in order to try to understand how this works. To say 
why is an onion so good? Because there's more than just simply one layer to it. There's multiple layers, and hence why that's so good at trying to understand of the multiple layers of organizations and so forth of how things are within the Nazi state organization. So an onion's a good metaphor here for how things are working. So another example that Arendt gives us is the creation of scientific anti-semitic institutions and the first one that's created is the institute for the study of the jewish question in 1933 headed by historian walter frank and then this turned into a research institute for the study of modern german history then in 1940 another institute was founded for the study of the jewish question which was headed by a high regarded party member alfred rosenberg and then arendt says that this was then relegated to a shadow existence and then the first institute headed by frank was meant to become a seat of a comprehensive library of judaism but when the actual Jewish collections arrived, they were received by Himmler's special Gestapo department for liquidation. So why exactly did this then happen is really one of those lingering questions that Arendt builds up. Why do you have this whole institute created and then meant to be set up as a comprehensive library, but things are then actually taken away for to be burnt by the Gestapo. And that's why we go into the onion-like nature of how things work. And she says in 1944, we see exactly how you managed to get to the Gestapo taking away all these various different Jewish collections. And that's because we start off with the university history departments. Behind that was Alfred Rosenberg's Institute. Then behind Alfred Rosenberg's institute was Walter Frank's institute. And then behind Walter Frank's institute, which is protected by all these layers, lay the real center of power of authority, which I'm probably going to mispronounce, but I'm going to try my absolute best. The Reichsseicherheitsschamptamt, which translates into English as the... Reich Security Main Office, which is a special division of the Gestapo. And so here we can precisely see this onion-like nature that at the center of it lays the secret police as the real form of authority that's going on. And the one layer you have, the university history departments, and then you peel away a layer, you get to... Alfred Rosenberg, you peel another layer away, you get to Walter Frank's Institute behind that, you peel the other layer away from that, you get to the Gestapo and the special division of the Gestapo. Why this level of complexity then? Why do we have this onion-like nature at work? And really, it's the way in which Arendt phrases this as really a shapelessness of its structure. Because she says, well, what does have structure is a building. Buildings have structure. What do movements have is just one direction, which is forward. 
in a continual motion. And that really anything that tries to pin it down in any way is ultimately thought of as a handicap. As she says, any legal or government structure is only a handicap to a movement with only one direction. And why exactly is it always in this forward motion without any sort of seeking a structure whatsoever? Because we have to go back to the pre-power stage. And as she says, this is represented by a masses no longer willing to live in any kind of structure, still limited to a specific territory of a country, but seeks to destroy all structure itself. And we can go into an example, as which popped up quite a number of times now, into Hitler's aims for people once they become party members as a disruptive force to destroy all structure completely of government. And really for a Stalin side of things, we can go into the fact that he was a member of an underground movement and really part of communism as a whole is washing away the past structures because we can go into China and Chairman Mao that whole cultural aspect of book burning that took place because everything in the past was seen to be something that was bourgeois and everything therefore had a bourgeois connection. The only way to destroy it is to burn it and get rid of it. Not to say that that happened in a same way for Russia, but you can still see that within the way in which is implemented, there's always that idea of getting rid of structures completely, at least in terms of Stalin, it's the ideas of continual purges and continual liquidations that take place. So therefore, everything's in that continual movement towards newness all the time, which then nicely leads us into Soviet Russia and Stalin's side of things, because then we've just dealt with the Nazi side of things, so let's move on to the other side. And one of the things in which Hannah Arendt deals with is how the Soviet Congress itself lost power during the whole Russian Civil War period, and that this made Soviet Congress only appear as a shadow government, whilst the real government was the Bolshevik Party. During the period of the Russian Civil War, which is November 1917 to October 1922, the Red Army was made autonomous and the secret police was re-established as an organ of the Bolshevik Party and not a part of Congress. And then this move towards a one-party rule was completed in 1923, which is first year of Stalin as General Secretary of State. And then cells are also formed by the Bolshevik Party, which functions as representatives and responsible to the Central Committee in Moscow. And then Bolsheviks didn't abolish the Soviet Congress, but used them as decorations for the outward symbol of their authority. Likewise, Stalin's constitution in 1936 that we covered last episode was created in order to appear great to foreign observers rather than to be actually carried out. So here we have this whole interesting aspect between real power and authority 
and the shadow-like existence of something that appears to just have authority but doesn't whatsoever. In Soviet Russia, we've just had the example there of the Soviet Congress appearing to have all the power and authority, but what does is the actual Bolshevik party, and then what has even greater power is that Central Committee, which within the Nazi whole part of it as well, we have that whole relation into what appears to have a lot of power is the party itself, but in fact, what has the real power is the elite formations, and an even greater power is again into that inner circle with your elite party members in there who are part of that. So, continuing on then, unlike the Nazis who capped the original state organizations and built new ones, the Soviets created new organizations and liquidated old ones. This created a situation of a constant creation of new offices to be the new center of power and putting the prior ones into the shadow. Like the Nazis, the secret police was the real authority and the party bureaucracy only appeared to have power. The multiplication of new offices can be seen in the complex network of the secret police itself where one department was spying on another. And I have a great quote here. Every enterprise in the Soviet Union has its special department of the secret police which spies on party members and ordinary members alike. And so isn't that interesting itself that within the whole tier system of how Soviet Russia works, that within the secret police you would have suspicion and paranoia even within a department in itself. So therefore there's one department that's then created to spy on the other department, which then creates another department to spy on that one and so on. And then even that level of paranoia has continued on into workers' unions, where it says... Even unions in the factories are spying to make sure that workers are making their quotas. So within Soviet Union, we have the whole level and amount of paranoia is incredible. You have paranoia of even the spy departments within each other, as well as spying on and making sure that the workers are even making their quotas. So overall for Soviet Russia then, there's three main organizations. We have the Soviet Congress or state apparatus. Then we have the party organization. And then we have the NKVD, which is the People's Commissariat for Internal Affairs, which is the secret police. And then we have the NKVD within the NKVD, which is the secret police within the secret police. As we just said, the police spying upon themselves. And then all the reports of competing police agencies end up at the Moscow Central Committee and the Politburo. And it's then decided which reports will be acted upon and which police divisions will carry them out. However... It's completely unknown on a daily basis which decision will be made. It can be made to the NKVD or the next day part the party's network of agents or the next day a local committee. And as with the Nazis, there is no hierarchy of power or authority as it's only certain that one will embody 
the will of the leader. So here we have a situation like the Nazis, where there's no clear hierarchy within any of these organizations. Because equally, as it says there, we have no clue which department will be the privileged one on the given day. It'll change from one day to the next. One day it'll be the NKVD, the next day it'll be the party, and the party's network of agents, as it says, and then so on. You just continually chop and change your mind between who you have preference over, which then kills the whole idea of giving power and authority specifically just to one department all the time, like the secret police, you could say. But what do they all share? What is the all thing that they have in common? They're all carrying out the will of the leader. The same thing can be said in terms of Nazi Germany as well. What do they all have in common is the fact that they're all carrying out the will of the leader in every given instance. So what can we say overall? So wrapping up and getting into a nice comparison between both models. So, in both models then we can identify a number of comparisons. There are multiple offices, is our first point. The Nazis keep the original state offices and create new state organizations. Whilst in Soviet Russia, it's a continual creation of new offices and liquidation of old ones. Second point is that there is no center of power. In the creation of new offices, the center of power continually shifts. Then there is no hierarchy of power. Multiple places carry out the will of the leader. With the Nazis, there's that continual creation of new offices and the original state organization can carry out the will of the leader as well as those new ones. In Russia, it's left up to a number of organizations for who will be the will of the leader. So, one of the main things that sort of runs off for this fantastic lines, the more public and visible the organization, the less power it has, the more secretive an organization, the more power it has. So the example used there by Arendt is that the Soviet Congress, despite having the appearance of power through the constitution, which recognized it as the highest authority of the state, in fact had no power at all. Why was that? Because the Bolshevik party had the power, where it recruits its members openly and is recognized as the ruling class, yet that had less power than the secret police. And so that's just a fantastic way and to think of this whole discussion as well is that the more public and visible the organization, the less power it has, the more secretive an organization, the more power it has. And great quote to end on as well. Real power begins where secrecy begins. So in the next episode, then, we'll be continuing on reading through the section, The So-Called Totalitarian State. Feel free to check out the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dissecting philosophy. It has the first episode completely free of the Slavoj Zizek discussion 
of his book, Pandemic COVID-19 Shakes the World, that's currently going on on the Patreon page, with Patreon-exclusive episodes after episode one, all under the £5 tier. Feel free to also drop me an email at my address, dissectingphilosophy at gmail.com, Tip me a coffee at coffee.com forward slash dissecting philosophy, ko-fi.com forward slash dissecting philosophy. And lastly, I can be found on Twitter at I am a rubber man. Many thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time. <laughs>